invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the first chapter of the book of Jonah. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. So Jonah, near the end of the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. They're called minor not because they're insignificant, but because they're shorter than the other ones. So Jonah, one of the twelve minor prophets. We're in chapter one. We're going to be looking uh, today at the first 16 verses, starting off this series in Jonah. I know that the 17th verse there in chapter one is the part that we all know about with Jonah getting swallowed by the fish. But that verse actually goes with chapter 2. So we're going to focus on the first 16 verses from chapter 1 this morning as we begin this short series from God's Word. So Jonah chapter 1, and I invite you to follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, thank you for being a God who speaks, who reveals himself so clearly, God, to us. You reveal yourself to us in the creation where everything we see has come from your hand, God, And everything we see speaks to both your power and your providence. 
and Your goodness. You've revealed Yourself in this world that You have made, Father, but You've revealed Yourself most clearly in Your Word and supremely so in Your Son. And we ask, God, that You would help us now to hear Your Word with ears of faith and that our eyes would be opened to see what it is that You intend for us from Your Word. Remind us, God, even now, that Your Word always intends to act upon us to change some disposition of the heart, some desire of the heart, some action, Father, of life. Help us, Father, to hear and to be quick to repent and to believe. Please keep me from error, Father, and please grant Your people grace to hold fast to the truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you made a list of the most familiar Bible stories, surely Jonah and the great fish would be in the top five. Maybe the top three. Most people have heard the account of Jonah's life before because it, in part, it, it's, it's so remarkable. Here we have the history of an 8th century prophet who defied God's call to preach by running from the Lord only to be tossed in the sea swallowed by a fish, spat back out on dry, land, on dry land, and then given the same call a second time. That's remarkable, friends. Not many people in the Old Testament defy God and live to tell about it. And Jonah does. And if that wasn't remarkable enough, this formerly disobedient prophet then has the privilege of witnessing what can only be called an unexpected revival in Nineveh of all places. You see, it's a remarkable account. It's a historical account that is rather familiar to us. It's on the hallway wall out here leading up to the children's class. And yet, for all of the familiarity, the book of Jonah is also frequently misunderstood. For example, did you know the revival in Nineveh is not the conclusion to the book? It's not the climax. The actual conclusion to the book is this tense exchange between Jonah and God in chapter 4, where the prophet has the audacity to talk back to God like some mouthy teenager. Again, not many people in the Old Testament talk back to God the way Jonah does and live to tell about it. But what's more, the tense exchange between Jonah and God ends on something of a cliffhanger. Look, as the book ends, we're still not sure that Jonah has changed. We're still not sure that Jonah learned his lesson. Yes, he reluctantly preached to the Ninevites, but has he learned any more about the character of God? We're not sure. Has Jonah seen that regardless of the people and regardless of the situation, God always remains true to His character, whether it's Israelites or Ninevites? And that, friends, is really the point of this remarkable Old Testament book. The book of Jonah is about the unchanging character of the sovereign God. In the midst of the astounding events of Jonah's life, and they are, they are astounding, in the midst of those events, it's actually God that stands center stage. In fact, Jonah's life is the foil. It's the foil that highlights what God is like. Jonah is small while God is sovereign. Jonah is mean-spirited and indifferent, while God is compassionate and merciful. Jonah is quick to dole out death and judgment, while God is slow to anger. 
You see, we're drawn to Jonah because of the fish and the storm and the getting spit back out. We're drawn to Jonah because his life is remarkable. But in seeing Jonah, we're meant to conclude that God is actually the one who's remarkable. And that in turn brings the book to bear upon us. I hope you heard it when I was praying earlier. God's Word always intends to act upon us. Jonah's life not only reveals the truth about God, it also convicts us of the truth about ourselves. We are far more similar to Jonah than we care to admit. Like Jonah, we delight in God's mercy as long as God shows mercy to the people that we deem worthy. And we primarily mean people like us. But as soon as God starts to show mercy to those other people, perhaps even our enemies, as soon as God decides to do that, then all of a sudden we decide that we want justice to override mercy. How can God be merciful to that sinner? How can God be merciful to those people? Doesn't He know what they've done? Doesn't He know what they deserve? Friends, that's really the piercing application of the book. It shows us what God is like much more clearly, but it also confronts us with the ways that we think we know better than God. And so if we had to summarize the book, perhaps it would be best to say this. Jonah's life is a living application, or we could say a living illustration, of God's declaration in Exodus 33, when God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's the message of Jonah. God is not a God who delights in the death of the wicked. He is a God who delights to show mercy. And in that mercy, He calls sinners to repent and to live. And so the question really to us from this whole book, I'll ask it today, I'll ask it probably every Sunday until we get to the end. The question is this, whose vision of mercy are we embracing? Jonah's or God's? Do we want Jonah's mercy or do we want God's? So in light of that short too short overview, let's consider the events of of this opening chapter. Since God is undoubtedly the focus of the book, we're going to consider these 16 verses from the perspective of what they reveal to us about God. That revelation comes through Jonah's harrowing experience at sea, but through it all, God remains center stage. Specifically, it's how God acts that should get our attention here, and in three ways. In verses 1-3, to we see the God who calls. In verses 4 to 10, we see the God who pursues. And finally, verses 11 to 16 show us the God who receives glory. We begin then in verses 1 to 3 with the God who calls. Very quickly, verse 1 introduces us to the reality of God's word. Notice again how the whole book begins. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. On the one hand, friends, that is standard prophetic language. Over a hundred times in the Old Testament, you will read about the Word of the Lord coming to one of God's prophets. This is how God commissioned and authorized His messengers. That's what prophets were. They didn't primarily predict the future. They primarily told God's Word. And they would predict the future to confirm God's Word, but they weren't primarily predictors. They were preachers. Prophets are messengers of God. And this is how God called them into His service was through His Word. What's more, verse 1 is not the only instance that we have of Jonah 
serving as a prophet. In 2 Kings 14, we read of Jonah prophesying during the reign of Jeroboam II. And in that context, Jonah's words were fulfilled, proving him to be a true prophet of God. So on the one hand, verse 1 is standard Old Testament prophetic language. This is what you're going to get when you read about the prophets. But on the other hand, we shouldn't miss the significance of verse 1. It should get your attention, friends, very simply, that God's Word initiates the action in this book. Jonah is a prophet, but he did not make himself a prophet. His ministry is not founded on his ideas or on his Word. No, Jonah's ministry is called into being by the sovereign Word of God. You see, from the outset, it is God who calls. It is God who initiates the action. And that emphasis on God's sovereign Word continues in verse 2. Notice the message God sends Jonah to preach. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. You may know that Nineveh was one of the capital cities of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians, if you recall, were not a warm and fuzzy people. The Assyrians were ruthless. They were notorious in the ancient Near East for their brutality. During Jonah's lifetime, it seems that the Assyrian Empire was a bit curtailed by its own internal problems. But look, it wouldn't be long before the Assyrians were knocking on the door of Israel saying, we're going to decimate your kingdom and take the ten tribes away into exile. So if we place Jonah as ministering during the 8th century B.C., which seems most likely, then we should conclude here that he's been given a daunting task. It's always a daunting task to speak on God's behalf. Jonah's task is particularly daunting because of where he has to go. He has to go to Nineveh. Not a fun place. But before we get to Jonah's response to God's message, there's something else about God's Word that we should take note. Did you catch there in verse 2 how God sends Jonah to call out against Nineveh's evil? Friends, that's a word of warning. The Ninevites do not profess to follow the Lord God of Israel. And yet, the Lord God of Israel stands in judgment over the Ninevites. God is sovereign over all nations, not just Israel's twelve tribes. God is the Creator, the Lord of all the earth. And therefore, even the wicked Ninevites stand accountable to God. The Lord sends Jonah to Nineveh because He is the God of every person everywhere. He reigns over everyone. And it's right here that we get the first glimpse that the Lord's mercy is not like our mercy. We get the first glimpse of the mercy that will mark this whole book. Understand, God did not have to send His Word to Nineveh. As the sovereign Lord, God could unleash judgment on the Ninevites any time that He chose to do so. He has the right, He has the prerogative to do that for even the Assyrians who do not worship Him. Even the Assyrians belong to Him as the Creator. So God can unleash judgment anytime He wants. But that's not what He does, is it? Before unleashing His judgment, God sends His Word. God warns them. And implicit in this warning to the Ninevites is a call to repent. 
You warn people in the Bible so that they'll turn from their sin. In this warning is a call to repent. And through that repentance, to live. Why should the Ninevites hear such a call to repentance? Why do they get the life-saving warning? Is it because they deserve it? Hardly. They get the warning because God is merciful even to wicked Ninevites. In fact, friends, this is always God's reason for confronting humanity's sin. This is always the reason for God's warnings of judgment. It's not merely to terrify or to berate us. No, it's to call us to turn from our sin and to find life in His Word. You see, it's God's kindness that compels Him to send His Word to sinners. And that kindness, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, is meant to lead us where? Where is God's kindness meant to lead wicked people like us? To repentance. And through repentance, to find life. Is that how you hear God's Word, friends? Even when it warns you about sin? Do you hear His Word as the expression of His mercy to you? As calling you to turn from sin and to find life in His name? If you do not know God today through Christ, if you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus, do you see the Lord's mercy in bringing that to your attention even now? This is why God confronts us through His Word so that we would turn and repent and trust Him and live. That's part of the takeaway at this point. Jonah's mission is an expression of God's mercy to the undeserving. And while our situation is different than Jonah's, God's mercy remains His same. He gives us His Word, not because He has to, but because He's merciful. And in His mercy, He uses His Word to call us to repentance. But as you know, what happens next in the book is both surprising and foolish. Jonah runs. Notice verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah rebels against the Word of God. The call was clear. Go to Nineveh. That's to the east. But Jonah responds by going to the opposite direction. To Tarshish. To the west. And he does so because he wants to escape the presence of the Lord. Notice how verse 3 mentions that fact twice. At the beginning and at the end. Jonah wants to escape the presence of God. He doesn't want to hear God's Word. And he refuses to obey. Why, we ask? Well, chapter 1 doesn't tell us. And we have to wait until chapter 4 to get the answer. At this point, it's enough to say that Jonah wants no part in proclaiming God's Word to Ninevites. He wants no part in going to Assyria. And so therefore, Jonah runs. But where does Jonah think he can go? We read it earlier in Psalm 139. There is nowhere that you can go to escape from the presence of the Lord. You go to heaven, He's there. You go to the grave, He's there. The darkness, He's there. The light, He's there. Go to the sea, He's there. Where does Jonah think he's going to go? You can't run from God. And yet, that's what Jonah tries to do. He tries to outrun the sovereign God, which is utter foolishness. Are you running from Him today? You can't outrun God. Understand, friends, all of Jonah's later troubles start right here. His worst trial is not getting stuck in the belly of a fish. It's disobeying God's Word. It's rebelling against what God has said. And this too, then, is part of our takeaway from chapter 1. Through Jonah, God is warning us just as He intended to warn the Ninevites. Do not think that you can outrun the Word of God. 
Do not think there is somewhere you can go and hide from His presence. Disobedience to God's Word in whatever degree you display it. Disobedience to God's Word always brings disastrous consequences. And listen, I know that we're not Old Testament prophets. I know that no one in here is being sent to Nineveh to preach. Our situation is different. But do you know what, friends? Our situation is actually more serious than Jonah's. Jonah had God's Word in part. We have God's Word in full. And therefore, the warning of Jonah's life is one we must hear. Do not think that you can outrun the Word of God. Ask yourself this morning, friends, is there a specific area of my life where I know I am rebelling against what God has said? Am I deliberately going against what the Scriptures have spoken? Maybe it's a relationship where you know something needs to change. Sin that needs to be confessed. Conflict that needs to be resolved. Maybe it's a habit that you know doesn't line up with Scripture. And every time you do it, that thing in your conscience pricks against you and you just keep doing it anyway. Maybe it's something you're neglecting to do, even though you know the Bible clearly calls you to obey and to do that. Whatever it is, friends, I pray you listen to Jonah's life. Don't miss the mercy of God right now. Right now is mercy to you if you're trying to run from Him, if you're trying to hide. God is calling us to repent and to submit to His Word. If there's an area of your life where you know that like Jonah, you've packed up and gone to Tarshish, listen to God now and repent. And acknowledge where you have gone astray. He is the God who calls. And when we hear His Word, we ought to do what Jonah would not. We ought to listen and respond and believe what God has said. As the chapter keeps going, we find God still taking the initiative. Look at verse 4. The Lord hurls a great wind upon the sea. He is the sovereign God of all the earth. The wind obeys where the prophet would not. Which means this is no ordinary storm. This is divine pursuit. And that's the picture we have of God in this section. He is the God who pursues. The God who pursues. Friends, the storm in verse 4 is the manifestation of God's judgment. Remember, Jonah has disobeyed God. And therefore, what Jonah deserves is the judgment of God. Jonah deserves to die. And so, the Lord pursues his wayward prophet. And yet, Jonah seems rather oblivious to God's pursuit, at least at first. The storm is so violent, it threatens to, te to tear the ship apart. Even the pagan sailors in verse 5 recognize the danger they are in. They begin hurling cargo into the sea. But more than that, these pagans begin to pray. Verse 5, they're praying to their gods. Now, of course, the sailors' prayers are powerless because their gods are nothing. Idols cannot hear you when you pray, which means these so-called gods can't do anything to stop the storm. But at least the sailors are praying. Where's Jonah? Well, notice verse 6. He's asleep down in the cargo hold. A violent storm is raging. Men's lives are at risk. And Jonah, the wayward prophet, sleeps. Why is he sleeping? Who knows? The text doesn't tell us. Perhaps he's content to die. Or perhaps his sleeping is a sign of spiritual dullness. I take it as the second one. Whatever the reason, Jonah's asleep. Think about that, friends. Jonah is the one man on the ship who knows the truth. He's the only man who would know to pray to the one true and living God. And yet, Jonah sleeps 
and the pagans pray. But the picture of Jonah gets worse in verse 6. The captain of the ship wakes him up and notice what the captain tells him to do. Verse 6, Arise, call out to your God. Friends, that's a stinging rebuke for a sleepy prophet. And it comes from a pagan. At this point, the pagan captain has a better sense than Jonah of what needs to be done. In fact, since verse 3, Jonah has been on a steady downward spiral. You hear it in the, in the text. Verse 3, Jonah went down to Joppa where he went down into a ship. And now verse 5, he has gone down to the inner part to sleep. Down, down, down. Jonah's disobedience is spiraling downward. The captain of the ship does not know the Lord, but in some sense, the captain of the ship knows better than Jonah right now. And so the captain calls Jonah to pray. But then strikingly, Jonah doesn't pray. At least not yet. Jonah doesn't pray until chapter 2. It takes a fish in his belly to get Jonah to pray. Jonah doesn't pray right now. Which means the situation on the ship is still dangerous. The sailors are desperate. Verse 7, they cast lots to determine who is to blame for the storm. That might sound a bit antiquated to us. Why trust something so random to give insight? But remember, friends, the Old Testament clearly declares that God is sovereign over all things, including random things. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision comes from the Lord. So, in His sovereignty, God chooses to reveal the truth through the casting of lots. You see, the Lord will not let Jonah go. That's what you need to see in verse 7. He tries to hide in a ship. God brings a storm. He tries to hide from the people in the ship. God casts lots. And they take Jonah. God will not let Jonah go. You cannot outrun God. And so the lot falls to Jonah. And it's time for him to confess. Notice what he says, verse 9. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, what is the significance of Jonah's confession in verse 9? Well, on the one hand, Jonah's confession exposes the truth about what he has done. Notice Jonah says that he fears the Lord. The idea is to worship and reverence and obey. But if Jonah fears the Lord, why is he stuck in this storm? Because he did not fear the Lord. Because he chose to run instead. So do you see what God has done? He's used the storm to expose Jonah's own sinful heart. But at the same time, Jonah's confession also exposes these pagan sailors to the truth. Remember, these, these sailors have been praying to their lifeless gods, but now in verse 9, they hear the truth that there is only one God, the Lord. And this one true God is the Maker of the sea and of the land. Now, I think when we read narratives like this in the Bible, God intends us to use our sanctified imagination to try to see what's going on. So I want you to imagine hearing that confession in the midst of a violent storm. It would be gripping, would it not? As the waves are crashing over the side of the boat, imagine this sleepy-eyed prophet telling you he belongs to the God who made those waves. It would be terrifying. But it would also be truthful. You see what God has done? He's used the storm to not only expose Jonah's sinful heart, but also to expose these pagans to the truth. He's used the storm to spread the truth of His name. And God has even allowed Jonah to be the vehicle through which He, do, he does that. 
Friends, it's not the main takeaway of the passage, but it is one that should encourage us. Aren't you glad that our stubbornness does not limit God's commitment to spread His truth? Aren't you glad our stubbornness does not limit God's commitment to spread His truth? Jonah didn't want to make God known. So what does God do? He pursues Jonah and makes him reveal God's truth anyway. God will not let him go. That should encourage us, brothers and sisters. By all means, we should never excuse our disobedience or our apathy towards God. Those are reasons to repent. Never reasons to rest easy. But at the same time, we should be encouraged that God's commitment to His truth far outmatches our failings. God's devotion to His own name far surpasses our waywardness. What a mighty God we serve. And that truth, friends, should compel us to be faithful. It should compel us to do what Jonah would not. And that's to trust the Lord and obey when He calls. Well, as we keep going, we, in the chapter we see that the situation is still pretty bad. Jonah has confessed the truth, but in verse 10, the sailors only grow more afraid, and rightfully so. The sailors recognize Jonah is trying to outrun the God who controls the storm. And if something doesn't change, then these men are going to perish. They're going to die. Verse 11, though, something does begin to change. And it's here we see the third picture of the Lord. He is the God who receives glory. He's the God who receives glory. The sailors ask Jonah what they should do. And in verse 12, Jonah gives them the answer. Hurl me into the sea, Jonah says. Why does Jonah say this? Well, perhaps because he recognizes his guilt in running from God. Perhaps Jonah sees that the storm is God's judgment meant for him, not for the sailors. Whatever the reason, it's clear that Jonah connects the storm with his sin. He ran from God. God hurled a storm. And now Jonah has to face God in the waves. But this text is full of surprises. And in verse 13, we encounter another one. The sailors don't immediately throw Jonah into the sea, which is what I would have done. Instead, they try to row the ship back to the shore. If they can survive without Jonah perishing, then surely that would be their preference. But it doesn't work. You can't outrun God, and apparently you can't outrow Him either. The storm gets worse. And so, with no other option available, the sailors decide to act on Jonah's plan. But not before they pray. Notice verse 14. These pagan sailors appeal to Jonah's God. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Friends, I'll point out to you that so far in chapter 1, these sailors are the only ones who have prayed to the Lord God of Israel. Jonah still hasn't prayed but the pagans prayed. And did you notice how their prayer to God is grounded in who God is? They actually appeal to God's attributes, to His mercy and to His sovereignty. They beg God not to allow them to perish for Jonah's sin. That's an appeal to mercy. And they acknowledge that God has brought all of this about. You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. That's an appeal to God's sovereign power. They pray on the basis of God's attributes. Israel's prophet won't pray, but the pagans will pray. Now, are these sailors full-fledged believers in Israel's God? Is this, is this a mature expression of faith in the Lord? Well, we can't say with any certainty. But we can say at this moment, the sailors entrust their lives to God. 
The sailors entrust their lives to the Lord. They confess that they are in God's hands. And they appeal to God to spare their lives. And in verse 15, the Lord God of heaven, the Maker of the sea and the land, hears their prayer. Notice verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from raging. And with that, the ordeal comes to an end, at least for the sailors. The Lord hurled a storm. The sailors hurled Jonah. And the storm subsides. Jonah is tossed into the waves of God's judgment. And with that judgment satisfied, the sailors are spared. Their lives are saved. While the last sight we have of Jonah, at least for now, is of him sinking further down into the abyss. Down, down he goes. In His mercy, God has spared the lives of the sailors and it is only mercy, it is only mercy that can reach Jonah at this point. And so the chapter concludes with one final surprise. Look at verse 16. And notice who at the end is offering God praise and worship. It's not the Israelite prophet. It's the sailors. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Friends, think about what these men have witnessed. As soon as Jonah hits the water, the storm stops. It wasn't those other so-called gods who saved them. It was Jonah's God. It was the Lord of heaven and earth. What a clear and powerful contrast. The lifeless idols that they prayed to in verse 5, what did those gods do? Nothing. Because those gods are nothing. But Jonah's God, the living God, what does He deserve? He's worthy of worship. In fact, notice the progression of the sailors' fear throughout the first chapter. Verse 5, they were afraid and cried to their gods. Verse 10, they were exceedingly afraid of the news about Jonah's God. But now, verse 16, they exceedingly fear the Lord Himself. Do you see how it moves from terror to worship? God the God of all the earth, has made Himself known. And that's, friends, the final word of the opening chapter. Why has God done all of this? Why the pursuit and the storm and the sparing of men's lives? Why has God done this? So that these men would know there is a God in heaven to delights, who delights to show mercy. And as readers of the book of Jonah, we're meant to ask, Why has God spared me? Because He's a God who delights to show mercy. Please don't miss that, friends. For the sailors in the boat, there can be no doubt as to who is the one true God. They just saw His power, both in judgment and in salvation. And in response, the sailors give to God what He deserves. They offer Him their worship. And in this surprising close to a surprising chapter about a wayward prophet, God gets what He deserves. Deserves. He gets glory that is due to His name. What about Jonah, you ask? Well, the Lord's not finished with him. Not in the least. He'll learn firsthand about God's mercy in the next chapter, but for now the focus is on the Lord. God has used the rebellion of His prophet to bring glory to His name. Think about that. Jonah rebelled, and he's accountable to God's judgment. And God even used Jonah's rebellion to bring glory to His name. Amazingly, the glory that God reveals is the glory of His mercy that saves. 
And in that sense, friends, we're not all that different from the sailors in verse 16. Our only hope, your only hope, is the mercy of God that saves helpless people in the face of judgment. The sailors saw a glimmer of that mercy in the storm. We have seen the full display of that mercy in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike Jonah, Jesus did not deserve to be tossed into the waves of God's judgment. Unlike Jonah, Jesus was obedient and faithful to His Father to the very end. The Father said to the Son, Arise and go fulfill the covenant I have made. And the Son arose and came to this wicked earth and preached in order to call sinners to repentance. Jesus was faithful to the end and He did not deserve to face the storm of God's judgment. And yet that's precisely where Jesus stood. No one had to hurl Jesus into the waves. He willingly took the judgment upon Himself for the joy that was set before Him, the writer to the Hebrews tells us. Jesus endured the cross so that helpless people like us might know the saving mercy of God. Why did God do all of this? So that people's lives would be spared and know His mercy. Why has God spared you and me? So that we would know His mercy and to know it most supremely in Christ. Brothers and sisters, please don't let the sailors in verse 16 be the only people who worship God today. Let's not miss the glimmer of mercy. We see in their lives a glimmer that unfolds in the full dawn of mercy that we have received in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word that so clearly tells us what You are like. Thank You for Your Word that declares to us the unfathomable mercy of God. Thank You, Father, for showing us in this chapter both what we deserve, judgment like Jonah, and both what we have received in Christ, mercy like the sailors. You save God because You are merciful, and You do so because Your judgment has been satisfied through Your Son. We pray, Father, that You would help us to know Him, to love Him, to follow Him, to obey Him and trust Him in a way that brings honor and glory to His name. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.